I realized that when I was young and I said yes to everything and other people who didn't say yes to everything, I thought that they were lazy. They were not as dedicated. They didn't care about the patients as much. And I realized like that's toxic. And I was part of the problem. Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicol. On today's show, I'm joined by Uber technician and anesthesia nerds founder, Tasha McNearney. Tasha is a certified veterinary technician and pain practitioner specializing in anesthesia, as well as having the distinguished diploma in utterly nerdy vet tattoos. Her veterinary journey began back in 1997 when she first started working in practice and has seen her rise to become one of the most inspiring advocates for animals in our profession. Tasha graduated from Michigan State University in 2003 with a degree in wildlife biology. Gained her LVT status in 2006 after studying veterinary technology at Manor College and in 2015 qualified as a veterinary technician specialist in anesthesia. She also works to educate the public on animal pain awareness, founding Animal Pain Awareness Month alongside the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management. Tasha's a regular on the vet speaking circuit and in 2020 she was recognized for her contributions by being voted VMX Speaker of the Year for Veterinary Technicians. But perhaps her greatest accomplishment in doing all of this work so far is in finally proving beyond any doubt that nerds can be cool too. Well, at least veterinary anesthesia nerds. If you are not picking up what I'm putting down right now, then search for veterinary anesthesia nerds on Facebook and you'll find a group she founded with more than 18,000 other passionate devotees to making life safer for animals under our care. Speaking of awesome communities, a quick word from today's show sponsor. Did you know there is a community where you can learn the essential street skills for how to be a great general practice vet, upon which you can build your sustainable, fulfilling career? Who'd have thought? A place where you can access mentors and also me as your mentor. View jobs from practices that care about culture and access new weekly articles and podcasts all dedicated to your happiness in this profession. That place is called VetX and you can access all the resources, including a career planning tool, 14 hours of accredited education, hundreds of articles and live mentor Q&A sessions, plus earn swag and more. And yes, I will be your personal mentor. That was not a joke. To join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better, go to vetxinternational.com today. Registration is free. So head there at vetxinternational.com now. Well, not now. Listen to the show first. I've known Tasha for years, so it was awesome to finally have this conversation. She's not only a great advocate for our profession, but she's also a great person to spend some time with. If pain, learning how to look after yourself, and cool tats are your jam, this episode is definitely for you. Oh, and she's also a card-carrying member of the We Love Great Britain Club. What's not to love? So let's jump right into this, my conversation with the fantastic Tasha McNair. Tasha, welcome finally to the show. Finally. <laughs> finally. And it's great to get you on the show. And I have to say, and we're recording, there's a video version of this recording as well. Your hair's looking awesome. I have hair envy. Thank you. Interestingly enough, my son today, as he is getting ready for school, he was like, Mom, your pink is faded. And it doesn't look as good as it used to look. So maybe you want to touch it up. My 10-year-old son. I was like, okay, thanks, buddy. I feel real great in the morning. Thank you so much. Who's <laughs> the confidence? Nice. 
just to set you off for the day. Yeah. And he was like, oh, but I'm just trying to help you so you can, you know, so you can look better. And I was like, okay, stop talking now. Thank you. That's really cool. Yeah. There's the hole. <laughs> Quit digging. Okay. <laughs> it looks fabulous, I must say. It's looking wonderful. And almost candy floss has kind of like got this sort of almost sky. It's a sunset almost pink with, with going yeah. to wear candy floss. Looking amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I think that candy floss or cotton candy for us United States people is what I was going for. Like that and a combination of, you know, turning 40, fear of losing my youth, you know, all that kind of angst that's still in there. My 22-year-old angst that's still in there that I don't (laughs) want to let go of. And I thank you for being bilingual as well between uh, UK, British and American British English and American English. Very Yes. Good. I'm trying to prepare my husband for our eventual move to the UK. And so when we watch certain things, he'll be like, they're going to put it where? And I'm like, okay, so they called their garbage containers bins, honey. So that's yeah. the bin. When they say the bin, this. And like, you know, put the kettle on means this, you know. So I, I'm trying to get him ready. Trying okay. to get him ready. All right. So just briefly then, I want to know what the – so. What do you call a kettle in the United States? Like this is this is new to me. There's a different word for that. I mean, a lot of people will call it a teapot. What the thing you boil water in? Yeah, that's not a teapot. A teapot's a thing you put tea bags in and you put boiling water in. I understand this. <laughs> yes, I understand. There's the kettle. There's the teapot, right? But uh, if you said to a regular American, like, "Hey, you know." some water in the teapot or what my grandmother used to say was, you know, let me, she would make coffee with a pour over style back in the day. And she would say, I got to get it out of the teapot, which we know it's not on a teapot. It was a kettle on the stove being heated, but listen, it's fine. It'll all work out. So Tasha, I've never asked you this. I don't think, and you and I have known each other for a number of years and I've known of your, your love of, of England. And, and I must say it's, it's not totally misguided. It's close to being a love of the, the best country in the world, but not close enough because obviously that's Scotland. But we'll let you have <laughs> England. And, and I live in England as well, so that's fine. Where does that love of England come from? Oh, so it comes from British television from the late 70s and early 80s uh, that my mother was a fan of. And so I grew up watching Are You Being Served? Oh, matron. Yep. And so for me, I have no idea, but I just felt like these people, their lives were so glamorous and they were so wonderful. And I was like, I want to work in a department store in London when I grow up and I want to live there and everything they're doing is wonderful. And, you know, you're all doing very well. I just, uh, it's like so nostalgic and I love it so much. (laughs) So, yeah, that probably started there. And then when I finally got to go to England, okay, it's really strange. I'm going to get like a little weird now because I'm not saying I totally believe in past lives and like all this stuff. Who knows? I don't know. The universe is weird. But have you ever been somewhere before? And you travel a lot, right? So have you ever been somewhere before and you get there and you're like, oh, well, I'm just home now. This is home for me. California. And I've been so many places and traveled so many places. Like, like, 
Australia was beautiful and Finland is gorgeous. And, you know, even my time in Moscow was great. And But I never got to any of those places and felt like, oh, well, this is just home. This is where, this is fine. This is home. This is where I live. Yep. And I felt that about England. And mm. for me specifically taking the train from London to Birmingham, I just stared out the window the whole time. And I was like, this is home. This is where I'm supposed to be. Wow. And I, it's so weird. I can't even explain it other than that's home. Yeah. I feel the same thing when I get, and it doesn't matter where in California, but I felt the same thing in San Diego and in San Francisco, just something in the air, the smell, everything just suddenly I'm like, even though they're completely different ends of a massive state and completely and utterly different, it just feels like I get the same vibe. Yeah. Yeah. And in no part, like my family is not, my family history, you know, is not, at least what we know, not from England. So I have no idea where this comes, like really where it comes from, other than it, either Key West, Florida, or England have the only been the only places that I've felt like, yeah, this is my place and my home. But for right now, my home is Philadelphia. So it is what it is. <laughs> right. And uh, we can discuss you joining my practice as and when the time's right. Listen, I'm, I can't wait. I'm already, I'm trying to make those connections so that when Oliver, my son, goes to college, which again is still eight years from now, but when that happens, listen, eight years is going to go by fast and I am ready to get that passport ready to go. I'm there. You're ready to become Mrs. Slocum right mm. there. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. There you go. Yeah, I got a head start on the colored hair. So yeah, well, exactly. I think was she not a blue rinse? You're kind of yeah. She was a blue lavender. Yep. There you go. Brilliant. And for everyone who has no idea what we're saying, then you have to go Google. Are you being served for a a camp department store fest from the seventies in Britain? It's probably utterly inappropriate now. So oh yes, very much. (laughs) Tasha, there's so much I want to ask you about, but you were many hats or have worn many hats you've got your speaker hat you've got your anesthesia nerds hat you're obviously an esteemed highly qualified veterinary technician what are you working on just now like what's going on in your life oh my gosh this is an hour-long episode right i don't think we have enough time no that would be a short version yeah so many things so i quit my job i will give you a little bit of the long version yeah okay i was working in anesthesia at a research facility learning a lot. It was wonderful. But at the same time, I was working 50, 60 hours a week, working on weekends. I was working all the time. Wow. There was a point that I took my son to his basketball game. And at the end of the basketball game, he came up to me and he was like really disappointed. And I thought that he might have been upset about the way the game went. And he was really disappointed in me because he made a really great shot and I didn't see it because I was on my phone. Because I was replying to an email or something, right? It meant a lot to him. And man, just as a parent, dagger in the heart when they're like, you weren't paying attention to me because you're working. You're always working. You're always on your phone. Yeah, I feel it. A couple weeks later, we went to our family vacation. We go to this little sleepy shore town in Lake Michigan, which is wonderful. But we're on the beach. So it's been a week since I've been at work. I'm on the beach and I just look over at my husband and I was like, this has been the best week ever. I mean, granted, most vacations you're relaxed, but it was like a different level. And I was able to connect with Oliver and connect with my son. For the first time, I felt like I was able to concentrate on something other than 
what was going on at work. And I just looked over at him and I said, I have to quit my job, which is really scary because at the time I didn't have another job lined up. I just knew I couldn't do that anymore. I just knew I was so burned out on that. I couldn't do it anymore. And so I quit my job and I was very hesitant to go back to a full-time job or working for someone else. And so I started doing relief work and consulting. So right now what I do is I either do in-person, like kind of teaching and training seminars for veterinary staff who want to get better at anesthesia. So I will come into your clinic and I will spend two, three days with the staff and we will discuss everything that you want to learn anesthesia wise. So whether that's learning how to use your ventilator or learning how to do CRIs or epidurals, whatever you want, I'll be in practice with you. And I also do lecturing and I do webinars and that kind of thing. So everything anesthesia and pain management related, just how can we make anesthesia and pain management better for our veterinary patients? And I actually have not, that was a almost a year ago in August of last year that I quit my job. So it's been almost a year. And I actually have never, haven't yet gone back to working a full-time job with anybody because I've been so busy with the consulting and the speaking and all this stuff, which is extremely fulfilling to me. And what's nice is I can set my own schedule. And in fact, this morning I had a request for, to come out to a veterinary clinic and help them. And just looking through my schedule, I realized that I don't have any availability until like fall to really go out to a place. So it's a good problem to have, right? But at the same token, (laughs) you know, I think when people say like, we want you to come out in May or can you come out in June? And I look at my calendar and I'm like, no. A, I've placed really hard boundaries on what days I'm available. So that's been a little bit different for me, which is tough too, right? Because I look at my calendar. And so for me, my boundary is Tuesdays. Tuesdays are with Oliver. Tuesdays are his basketball day, his soccer day. I take him to practice. We spend some time together. And Tuesdays are my day that I set aside for him. So I'm really protective of Tuesdays. At the same time, it's really hard. You know, when you are one of these people who just feels guilty for saying no, right? We know that we all need to say no to things and we need to maintain that balance, et cetera. But when you say no to things, and especially sometimes if I look on the calendar and I'm like, well, you know, maybe this one Tuesday I could go. I know where that goes. It snowballs into every Tuesday and then I'm right back to where I was before. And I'm trying. It's a work in progress, man. It really is because I, uh, you know, it's it's something I'm working on myself. It's something I'm working on with my therapist. She's just really been great about helping me understand that I A, don't have to say yes to every single job that comes along. If I say no, it's fine. And people won't assume that I am, you know, lazy or unreliable if I say no, which is like my greatest fear, right? I'm so fearful that if I say no to something, people will think that I'm unreliable. People will never ask me to do anything again. And I have to say yes to everybody to keep everybody happy, which is actually not true. It's just kind of like this way that I have always lived my life. And I'm now realizing at 40 (laughs) that, no, you actually don't have to live your life like that. And you can actually set boundaries and have some balance. So that's a long version of what I'm doing now. (laughs) I love it. I love it. There's actually a lot I I would like to follow up in there. 
Uh, and notwithstanding the fact, and now I'm feeling actually quite guilty because it's Tuesday and we're talking. Oh, so let me clarify. I'll clarify in that Tuesday, when Oliver's at school, I'm available. But when Oliver's, I've made Tuesdays kind of, um, I'm not really sure what school times are in the UK, but for here in the United States, Oliver gets dropped off at 8.30 in the morning and then he gets picked up at 3.30 in the afternoon, Pretty which similar. means that I'm not going to work clinically because I'm usually am not going to be able to be out of a clinic by 3.30. Yep. And, you know, I want to be the, on Tuesdays, I want to be the one who picks him up from school. He likes it. He doesn't have to go to the after school program. He can come home earlier. We can hang out before soccer practice starts. Sorry, football uh, uh, for you guys. I'm also bilingual. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> and most people listening to this are in America as well. Like, He's really into soccer and he's just starting to get into like Premier League, which I'm super excited about. And so he goes back. He's like, he lets me know like what his top team is. And I just ordered from the UK a Man City jersey because oh, he's all God. Man City. No. Oh, Listen, I'm sorry. I'm, it's, I don't know why he's, I don't know. And that's he's just glory glory hunting, like following the big team. But listen, I know. Listen, I mean, he's ten, so he might change his mind. That does happen. That yeah, does. but so Tuesdays are kind of like Oliver and I soccer afternoon. We hang out. I pretty much have a hard boundary that whatever I do, it has to end by three p.m. Okay, so I have some other questions about what other boundaries and you know, this is this is the disease I feel like and disease is probably an unhelpful label there, but it's a thing. It's a behavior pattern. That's what it is. As you're saying it, I'm thinking, hmm, this sounds familiar. And many of us in veterinary medicine have, like, we just don't like letting people down. Do you think, like, or how much of this, how much of everything we're experiencing that's kind of a little negative in veterinary medicine is an inability to set appropriate boundaries versus, I suppose where I'm going with this question is, how much of our lives should be, is much more in our control than we think? And how much do we, unwittingly through our behavior patterns allow enable this sort of thing to happen and actually maybe even actively want it to happen because of the very reasons you've just alluded to the fear of not being thought to be enough or whatever the narrative is in your head how much of that is at the core of the challenges we face and what other boundaries have you managed or, or you found effective at putting in place given it's a work in progress not holding you to a perfection or perfect answer, but. Yeah, I think that it's hard um, because I'll say I really could probably only speak for myself and maybe my husband since he works in vet med too. uh, And I experienced that, but I do think that you're correct that a lot of this is probably our own doing. And, Oh man, I got to tell you when you realize that you don't have to, say yes. I know I sound very cliche by saying this because every you know book says this, but it really is really freeing. I sat down with a colleague of mine just the other day after work and we were talking about job opportunities and different things. And, and she said to me, well, I don't know if I can do this, you know, because I haven't built up enough PTO and such to take days to go do this. And I just said, but you could do it anyway. Like you don't have to wait until your PTO is built up. If you want to take days off and maybe they're unpaid, if it's worth it, you can do that. 
Mm. You can, you actually can do that. And it's so crazy to think like, oh, you actually can do these things. Like we don't have to work 60 hours a week. You can set your boundaries. If you want to say that you're not going to accept any more emergency surgeries and your staff needs to go home, you can do that. You can turn off the phone and punt those cases to a local emergency clinic. And everyone right now in veterinary medicine is burned out. I do relief at a lot of clinics and it is the same in a lot of clinics. Believe me, there's not one clinic that has magically figured this out. And I do think that us as individuals, we have to be willing to set those boundaries. And for me, it started before I got into research. I worked in a clinic when Oliver was young and my boundary was, I mean, it actually wasn't my boundary. I was very thankful that actually it was a daycare boundary. So where we are, Daycare closes at 6 p.m. They don't care if you have an emergency surgery. They don't care what you're doing. You have to come pick your kid up at 6 p.m., right? Yeah, so for me, my hard stop was, right, I have to leave because I have to go pick up my kid up from daycare. There is no other option for that. I have to go do that. That can create tension in teams as well. Isn't it? I've no- noticed tension in teams where you've got the mom who has to go or the dad who has to go and the, the people without kids that then there can be a a resentment builds up there. Did you ever experience that? I never experienced it towards me, but I will tell you that I definitely threw it at people. Um, I actually wrote about this for um, Andy Rourke's site, um, an article this year that I wrote that I had said that I realized that I was part of the problem. I was upholding these toxic systems in veterinary medicine. I see it now. And I realized that when I was young and I said yes to everything and other people who didn't say yes to everything, I thought that they were lazy. They were not as dedicated. They didn't care about the patients as much. And I realized like that's toxic. And I was part of the problem. And I don't want to be like that anymore because I don't know what someone else's situation is. If they have a hard stop at 3 p.m., honestly, it's none of my business whether they have a hard stop because they want to go to a yoga class or they have to go pick up their, you know, their son from something or they have a doctor's appointment. They have a illness they don't want to discuss with the team. That is ultimately none of my business. Like the problem was my judgment of them. That is a toxic problem that I had that I needed to work on. It took me a long time to get there. Right. I think it's that is my own issues with, again, overachieving, not wanting to be perceived as lazy, all of these things that I think a lot of people in veterinary medicine are, we're probably a lot of us are the same personality type, right? We are, let's get it done. And we will sacrifice ourselves to work all night if we have to. And we want to be martyrs a little bit, I think. (laughs) Do you think that was more our generation? And is that part of what's changing now that's actually putting a lot of pressure on the system is that the next generation coming through are actually saying, we don't want to be martyrs. Like, you guys were crazy for doing it. We don't. And we're not. And so this this sort of sense that veterinary medicine is perhaps, particularly the heavy lifting is done in some ways by the younger generation doing the work supported by an older echelon who know how to do the work and can offer that mentoring and support level. That's what I came into. And we worked hard. And actually, the older generation were working hard as well. But 
for example, if I had a situation, I, I was having, let me throw this at you. I was having a really fascinating conversation with a dear friend of mine this weekend who works for one of the, not it's insurance company, but a very proactive one that looks after the profession and will defend quite aggressively uh, here. And one of the interesting things was the extent of call volume that is going into these associations now, partly asking for help on what, or the, the traditional stuff was, I've done this, what should I do next? As in, I screwed up, what are my options here? I'm, I'm, but there's a significant call volume that's coming in going, I'm thinking of doing this, what do you think? Versus, I've done this, what should I do? And the, certainly over here in the UK, there's a, and, and it's, I know it's happening a lot in the US, but massive corporatization. You're getting this upper echelon selling out of practice much younger than they used to and being replaced after their buyout time frequently with clinical directors who are really two, three, four years out of college who haven't really acquired that 10 to 15 year stretch of experience that then it gives you great comfort as a new vet to be able to go. Like the number of times I thought, I don't know if I should do this. And my boss was like, yeah, that'll be no problems. Here's what you do. You know, I can help you through that. Okay, great. Now, Now I've leveled up a little bit. But when the person you ask that question of is like, I'm not sure either. And suddenly everyone freaks out or refers the case or won't take it on. And so you've got that sort of generation that maybe don't want to be workaholic and be martyrs in the way that we were or are uh, perhaps without that sort of echelon of support above. And I don't, I don't know if you see that in technician world and you're getting this sort of viewpoint of the whole clinical team going in teaching but do you have a sort of sense of you know the accuracy of that or are you seeing impacts along those lines yes i do see certainly some impacts along those lines for maybe some general practice or smaller private practice that are i can only i guess speak to the local ones in the philadelphia area that i know of or that i've been into well no i guess i've gone across the country and all over so it's pretty common. But yes, I do see what you're saying. And it happens in technician, you know, the technician world as well. The newer technicians are going to appreciate a mentor. And we know that they're going to stay in these jobs longer, right? We have problems in veterinary medicine with attrition and losing people after a, a silly amount of years. Like I think the average for technicians is like five to seven years. So, yeah. you know, that's not great. But I know that part of it, and we've seen this from the studies, is it's not all pay. A lot of it is personal fulfillment. And are they mentored? Are they continuously learning? So that's for veterinarians and for technicians, right? Yep. If there isn't anyone to be that mentor, the voice of reason, and if a clinician feels uncomfortable doing something because they don't have somebody above them that can guide them, et cetera, and then they refer out right? Now we're kind of in that, are we, I think that I hate to use, I am technically an elder millennial, but I I hate the, so I don't really vibe with all the millennial stuff, but some of it, yes. But I don't like that a lot of the millennials, and I'm using little air quotes here, get this rap of being lazy or they don't want to work or that kind of thing because they push stuff off. When I think that it is they're more that 
they just want to do what's best and they don't want to make a mistake. So if there's no one above them to help them with this large canine tooth extraction that could, you know, result in massive bleeding and problems, they're going to refer it out. So I don't think it's that they don't want to do the work. I think they want to do the work to the best of their abilities. At least that's how I operate. Right. And so which sometimes is, you know, (laughs) you want to refer it out where it's going to get done the best or gold standard. But we have to look at kind of the other side of that in that there's possibility that the clients can't always go to best or gold standard. So what can we do here at this clinic to make it the safest experience possible for the pet? Right. There's a whole bunch of pet owners can't, for whatever reason, afford or commit to or or undertake the the gold standard of care. I'm I'm curious. I'm drawn to a quote uh, that I've I think is uh, something that you put in your Instagram. And that was, you said, I'm lucky to have a career that is emotionally fulfilling and something you learn from every day. And so I would love to hear about how you have maintained, and you mentioned earlier, you know, you felt quite burned out in, in one role. Actually, as you said that, I wondered, were you truly burned out? Or were, I sometimes wonder if we use that word very too easily now, or were you just like this? I've, I've had it with this. And so I've, that's maybe a little sub part to that question. How did you know you were burned out? But then I wondered, you know, still you've pivoted and you found something emotionally fulfilling. So what have you done or what do you do to, when you feel yourself in a space where you're not in the right energy space, like how do you keep it emotionally fulfilling? This is one of the big questions I feel like we've got to grapple with as a profession to retain people. Yeah. All right. So I'll start with the first part of that question, which was, you know, how did I know that it, that I was burned out? And ugh, it's hard to talk about because I feel like it doesn't live up to the very high <laughs> level that I, I want for myself. But it got to a point where, you know what, I want to be thought of as a change maker, a positive, I want to be a, a force of good and positive change. That is what I want for veterinary medicine, especially when it comes to anesthesia and pain management. So unfortunately, what sometimes happens, the job that I left, the team of people I was with were fantastic. I had some issues with management. There were times that they thought they should ask the staff to work a 16-hour day. I didn't think that that was really the way to build morale and keep people happy. They were less concerned about people's happiness and more concerned about end results, shareholder, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So that kind of gave me a sign that I didn't think that the management style was going to be something that I was going to vibe with long term. The second caveat to that was with working the long hours and trying to enact positive changes when it came to anesthesia and pain management. It was a very hard uphill battle. I got told multiple times that nothing's going to change. It doesn't matter what you do. It's not going to change. And when I tried to make these positive changes, it took about a year of me trying and trying and trying when nothing happening. And that's when I was like, I just can't do this anymore. And the reason I used, I do think that I was truly burned out was there were a couple times with me specifically interacting with patients. And I could see that something should be done, but I knew that Nothing could be done and and I couldn't even make a recommendation. And I was like, well, I can't even do anything. So sorry, patient. I don't want to be in that position. So I knew that mentally there's nothing I can do. So why even bring it up? 
that's not the patient care that I want to practice. <laughs> I want to always be advocating for the patient. And so I knew in that case that I'm not going to be able to fully advocate for the patient based on the systems that are put into place at this institution and the management team. So I'm going to have to go somewhere else. And that was that particular practice. And can I just ask, before you jump on to part two of the answer, the pushback you were getting was from leadership, not from colleagues, or was there a culturally, I think it was, was yeah, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, it was leadership. And it came down to, like a lot of places, right? I'm sure a lot of people experience this, It, it comes down to production. And that's what it felt like. And I wanted to practice based on patient care. And they wanted to practice based on production. Like, How many can you get done in a day? How many can we fit in? That's not good patient care, especially when it comes to anesthesia. Uh, You don't want to be rushing through anesthesia. And that's just, again, that is not how I want to practice. And so as much as it pained me to leave that job, because that job paid so, so well, (laughs) it paid really great. And there are days now that I'm like, ooh, should I have left that job? Uh, Yeah, I can sleep better at night. Like my integrity when it comes to anesthesia and patient care, that's the most important thing to me. So I have to maintain that. What did that do for your sense of well-being? You made a values call there and you made a integrity being where you live your values and they become virtues in that moment. How did that impact you having made that discussion? You mentioned there was a consequence. And I just think that's a good definition of integrity or perhaps courage that you know there's some un- something unpleasant is going to happen and you do it anyway. But integrity is living your values, particularly even when there is likely to be a consequence for you. That's scary. And you mentioned fear. You know, perhaps we've mentioned fear a couple of times already. You did it. What was on the other side of that? Oh, man. Oh, geez. Yeah. So it's the classic, right? Money or mental health. Although I still feel that at least I'm living it right now that you can actually have money and mental health. Like you can actually get paid well and still maintain your mental health. But for me, yeah, the choice was, am I going to keep going with this where I get paid a ridiculous amount and I'm just going to have to learn to look the other way when it comes to these patient care issues or policy issues? Or am I going to just leave this behind and find something that really speaks to me and fulfills me again within the realm of veterinary medicine, anesthesia and pain management. And it was hard. I'll tell you, it was hard like sitting down and having the conversation with my husband again, especially because I didn't have a backup job. I had to say to him, Hey, listen, you know, that savings that we've been sitting on and we've been thinking about like, do I actually, I'm going to quit my job. So we're probably going to have to use that. And we're not going to be able to go on this. We're not going to go on fancy vacations anymore. I'll tell you this year, Oliver is not going to be, he's not going to basketball summer camp because that it's very expensive. And I was able to send it to him last year because I was making that kind of money, but oh my gosh, I can't tell you how many times I laid awake at night thinking about either somebody on my team and the mental turmoil that they were in, or again, a patient call that needed to be made that I just thought was that I just didn't agree with. And now I'm not saying that I don't ever sit awake, laying awake at night and worrying about things anymore because that's everybody, right? We just worry about stuff, but the mental, the weight off of my shoulders you couldn't pay me 
There's no salary you could pay me to go back to where I was mentally. No salary. That end is, I mean, it's it's sad to hear that, but it's also amazing to make that decision. And actually, part of me hopes that anyone listening to the podcast that's in a place feeling compromised can derive some courage from the, there is another side to it. Anyone in that situation, would you have a message for them? Oh, yeah, yeah. I love talking about it now because as a lot of people who go through something and your eyes are fully open now, I do feel like my eyes are fully open now to A, all the possibilities that can be the fact that veterinary medicine doesn't have to be like this. Like the systems that we have been doing and it's always been this way and we've always done it like this, that is crap. And we don't have to actually do that anymore. And I think that not, that not only goes with, you know, uh, patient care standards, but also work-life balance stuff, pay. There's all kinds of things that just because we did it this way in 1972 doesn't mean we have to keep going. We should always be trying to learn and grow and do better, not only for our patients, but for ourselves. The reason that I've been in this for 16 years and been able to still love veterinary medicine is probably because, A, I have a good therapist, I have a good family support system, and I want to keep doing better. Like I want to, I am the perpetual student, right? I love reading. I love how can I make things better for the patients? But also, how can we make things better for the next generation of veterinarians and technicians so they don't feel morally compromised, so they don't feel like they want to leave after five to seven years. So I think that for me, I am fulfilled in this job, not only because I feel like I'm giving good patient care, right? I'm fulfilled when I know that an epidural has worked and my patient's going to be pain-free. But I'm also fulfilled in this job when I get messages from other technicians or even veterinarians who say, hey, when you said that I you know, didn't have to always work every Saturday and I went to my manager and I kind of put some boundaries in place, I'm so happy that I did that because now I'm, oh, I only have to work one Saturday a month. So just because it's always been this way doesn't mean it needs to stay this way. I would love to ask about some examples of things. Have you seen anything that jumps out as an example of doing something differently from your travels and Perhaps that could be an anesthesia since that's your, you know, your, your jam, but perhaps that's also people just playing with systems. And it feels like, I think the word as you were talking there, it feels like this could be a time of renaissance and you know, you don't look back on the renaissance and think of that being a horribly scary time. Although I'm sure culturally at the time, it probably was, was thought of as such as most changes scary to us but it it does feel like covid has been an accelerant on many of the challenges and the good things about veterinary medicine as which i think are vastly outweigh the negative things just the negative things can be hugely heavy for us sometimes but that we are a point of this feels like a, a little bit of a veterinary renaissance more than any other time in my experience of veterinary medicine so i just wondered you know in that 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 in the artistic world was a, a sort of a time of attachment to learning and, and culture and really starting to to get a rebirth, as it were, as it, as it literally is. What does that look like? Have you, are you seeing examples of things, systems, 
ways of being emerging that are different that have jumped out at you? Oh, yeah. Oh, I think one of the most exciting things is the idea that we can be much more flexible with work, that work doesn't actually, you know, I think we look at, we used to look at some remote job options and think, well, there's no way you can do work from home in veterinary medicine. You have to be in a clinic. You have to have your hands on an animal, right? But we know that there actually are job opportunities for people to work remotely. You can have your client service representatives work remotely at home, as long as they have access to the software and, you know, a telephone that they can talk to people. You can have your your appointment schedulers, all of these things. You can even have your technicians doing a day of working from home where they do all the client callbacks and check-ins and that kind of thing from home. So I think that this old way of, we can't do that. Well, we're just not going to do that. We have to stop saying no and start thinking, well, what if? What would it look like if we tried that? And just this morning, I was on one of the Facebook groups and someone had mentioned, here's what we, you know, for our job ad, what can we do to make this job more appealing? Because everyone wants to hire right now, right? Everyone wants to hire. And their job ad says, you know, three 12-hour days and that. And I'll tell you, I wrote in and I said, right off the bat, if I see a job ad that's three 12-hour days, I can't apply. As a working mom, I can't even apply for that job, even if it would be an amazing job and I could be an amazing fit for your clinic. I can't even apply. So I do think that having some flexibility, that is something that has come out of the whole pandemic. Uh, So not only remote positions, but work flexibility. So if you find a great candidate, someone who really vibes with your culture is going to be that great employee and they can't do three 12 hour days talk to them. Maybe they can do four 10-hour days. Maybe they would prefer five eight-hour days because then they can go pick their son up after work. There's all kinds of things like we need to stop this. Veterinary medicine is this and it's only this. Telemedicine, there's so many things that veterinary medicine can be and it just doesn't have to be in the clinic either, right? You can work for an insurance company. You could work for an online learning company. You can work. There's so many other things. You don't have to be pigeonholed just in the clinic. And that's not to say that I don't want you all working in the clinic. I I love <laughs> being leave clinic. clinic and I love being. So for me, I will always be clinical. Yeah. Because I love it. But I don't think that we have to be so rigid with, you know, it is this and only this. Yeah, if you could retain somebody who wanted to to do this for 20 years, but instead of doing it, you know, doing it for five years for 12 hours a day and burning out, if you could do it for 20 years for six hours a day, you'd have still gotten double the amount of contribution in service to patient care, to practice culture from doing so, if you had built a system that was willing to be more flexible in doing that. It is remarkable as you're, as you're speaking. I'm just sort of reflecting on, on my practice and I'm thinking, gosh, if you had said to me sort of four years ago that we would have um, you know, a mobile service going out there doing in-home euthanasias around London and the practice would be all of the senior team would be you know, working moms and that we would be doing telehealth from a remote vet base in Belfast. I would have thought, you're off your rocker. But here we are, you know, you, having to roll the punches is, is exactly 
you know, it's become such a more fluid, dynamic notion of, of work now. So you mentioned other things. I mean, you didn't mention other things, but I was curious about other things then that are there other components to, yes, you've had the career and that's emotionally fulfilling. Are there other components you've mentioned, Oliver, your, your son? What other things in your life, you know, keep you, keep your bucket overflowing as it were? Well, I think I mentioned that my whole, like I, maybe not everybody, maybe not everybody. I have like this <laughs> internal, like mission statement, like it is better anesthesia and pain management. And I know that that sounds like, oh my God, this girl, her whole life is about veterinary medicine and you need to like break free. That's not true. I read a lot. Like I do other things, but really ultimately for my core, I do feel this is super cheesy. I'm going to say it. It's really cheesy, but bear with me. I really do feel like my mission in life when they read my eulogy, it's that, you know, I was a force of change for better anesthesia and pain management. I want people to want the same things that I want, which is completely selfish, but I just want everybody to also want to be a force of change when it comes to anesthesia and pain management. And I want people to want better outcomes for our veterinary anesthesia and better pain management for our patients. And that's been incredibly fulfilling to me to be a part of big things that are changing the industry. And, you know, not only does it feed my ego a little bit, not a little bit, a lot, it's really great, but to be a part of things like book chapters and inspiring people to change the way that they practice at their home hospital, or to be a part of big things, right? Like the, September is Animal Pain Awareness Month. I don't know if you guys know that over there in the UK. I Hopefully it's getting around the world. Yeah, I did not know that, but I'm not speaking for the whole of the UK there. I know that there's some people who, who know that because we have some UK members on IVAPM. But between things like Animal Pain Awareness Month, which was brought together with the IVAPM and myself, and again, it just started as an idea of, hey, why not? Right? So... It was a conversation I was having with Vicki Byard, who is a VTS in dentistry. She's one of the best uh, technicians in dentistry there is. And she was going on and on about dentistry month, which is great. And everybody in veterinary medicine knows that dentistry month is February and blah, blah, blah. I'm not a dentistry person, so that really doesn't appeal to me. And so jokingly, I said to her, well, I'm just going to start my own month and it's going to be pain awareness month and yeah, what do you get to say about that? We'll have our own month. And we had a laugh about it. Again, we were at work. But it was the inception of that, right? As soon as I heard it, I knew that we're going to have an animal pain awareness month. And what do I have to do to get this done? And I contacted IVAPM. They started promoting it. Uh, it's now Animal Pain Awareness Month in September. is now recognized by the AVMA and that kind of thing. And what did you have to do to, to get be a part of initiatives like that? That's really fulfilling to me. Like the fact that fifty years after I'm, you know, not here anymore, that might still live on. Really good pain control might still live on. 
that's yeah legacy contribution what did you have to do to get it recognized like what was the you've covered that in about two seconds flat like what did you have to do to get that to be a thing that was something that would outlast you oh so i went to the ivapm and i just asked them hey how about we designate september as animal pain awareness month because on the human side pain awareness month is september so i thought you know one health let's get it all together Let's designate September. And the IVAPM said, great, that sounds great. We can get behind that. And then we just did it. Like we didn't ask anybody for permission or get it designated. We just said, okay, it's going to be September is Animal Pain Awareness Month. And we're just going to start telling people. And then it's going to be true, which is maybe not the best plan for everything to just go out and start doing it. But at the same time, we got the word out there. And then eventually, I think that we wrote to the ABMA and then they wrote us back and said, yes, we do agree, designate that September's Animal Pain Awareness Month. So it's recognized on their calendar and on another a whole bunch of other veterinary calendars. The industry got involved. And now in September, that's why you'll probably see a lot of advertisements for pain management products, right? The laser therapy and the carprofen and like any other medication that might be used for pain management. We really, they are really out there now in September. So take a look for it. If you see it, if you see any advertisements in September or any thing about Animal Pain Awareness Month, just know that it came from a small idea in a clinic. And if you have an idea that you think could potentially revolutionize vet med, put it out there, put it out there to multiple people. All you need is one other person who believes in you and then another person and another person. And then you start a movement, right? Of making things better. Like the feline grimace scale that just came out a couple years ago. I mean, holy crap, that has changed the way that we deal with cats in the hospital and pain management. And all it took was for you know, Beatrice in Montreal to say, hey, maybe there's something here. We should look at this. And then her colleagues were like, yeah, we should. And now across the globe, we're changing the way that we treat cats in pain. Again, these small ideas, right? We have them in veterinary medicine all the time, but I, I want technicians to know that that you guys, you have a lot of power. And if you have a really great idea or you want to change the industry for the better, do it. Please do it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't change unless we make the change happen, does it? So I wanted to actually dive into, we've spoken about quite a few other things here, which are really super fascinating, but let's talk about anesthesia. And I actually want to start off with one of the most interesting questions to me. Last time we spoke in person, you had a lot less ink than you do now on your persons. And Probably, yeah. I think you'd just gotten a, a benzo or something tattooed, like the, you had the chemical formula for... I have ketamine. Ketamine, that's right. And I have dexmedetomidine. Dexmedetomidine was the original. I think you had ketamine or you just had ketamine done maybe the last time. Mm -hmm. you. Yeah. You are somewhat more colorful now on your arms. So I want to talk you through... The, yes. Number one, I can see foxglove there, I think. Can I see foxglove? Yes, right? digitalis. Yep. Right. Got it. This is a muscle relaxer. This is Mandrake, right? So Mandrake was one of the very first anesthetic that they used in Greek times. They would make a tea or a tincture out of the Mandrake root. 
have people drink it until they fell unconscious, and then they would operate at that time. So Mandrake's one of the very first ones. We have um, Belladonna, right, for atropine. I have my poppies for the opioids. Um, and then my friends, Mac and Miller, <laughs> which are probably my favorite because I am a huge proponent of using the proper tools. And if you're intubating a patient, you should be using a laryngoscope. Learn how to use your laryngoscopes properly. And some people like a Miller blade, which is a long, flat blade. And then some people like a Macintosh blade, which is a blade that has a curve in it. I'm a Mac guy. So I am a Mac person as well, because I feel like if I have a cat, I want a Mac. I want that little bit of curve. That helps me with a cat so much. Yeah, no, all the way. Well, I had no idea about the Mac and the Miller ones. So that is something else. That is okay. Which just kind of shows that you're, you're inking these things on like... For anyone thinking this is lip service that Tasha wants to contribute to and change the world, like you're literally changing your physical appearance with things that matter to you, such as your level of commitment. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I mean, I have other tattoos as well that are not just anesthesia related, but for me... Now I want to know what they are. Oh, so I have my cat. That's my cat, Milo. He's over there sleeping, or I would grab him. So I took a trip to Australia and I took, if there's any, uh, you know, Australia people, they will get this reference, but I took the, the ferry from Bundina and I saved my ferry ticket because we went on a hike to Wedding Cake Rock, if anybody's been there, which was gorgeous and beautiful. And like, I just like had the most amazing day ever. And I saved my ferry ticket and then I had my tattoo artist in this is the fairy. This is the imprint from the fairy ticket. And then my Russian doll was tattooed after my trip to Moscow. So, which is bittersweet right now, I'll tell you. Were you out for the NVC conference? Yes. Yeah. I was speaking there and I just had the best time. Yep. I really thought Moscow was one of the most beautiful cities I had ever been to. And I loved the architecture. I loved the art. I, interestingly enough, again, I don't know if this is a good idea at the time, especially since I know zero Russian. I left the hotel, which is in like the suburbs of Moscow, and I took a bus to the subway. And then I took the subway from the suburbs into the center city. And then I just was like, I'll just tour guide myself and walk around. And I spent about 10 hours just enjoying the city by myself. Interestingly enough, I made it. I like was able to navigate the bus and the everything. And oh god, they're like metro stations are so beautiful. Incredibly and every early. all the people that I met were so lovely and wonderful. And yeah, I want to hold on to kind of that memory and not what's happening right now, which is just so unfortunate. So the tattoo right now as I look at it, it's it like I said, it's bittersweet and then I had such a wonderful time and Again, the Russian people that I have met and and I just love a feel for them and everything that's going on. I'm so glad you said that because I'm sort of grappling with my conscience a little bit. Before I went to Russia, I'd thought about it because I thought, yeah, but it wasn't long, long after the airliner was shot out the sky and you thought, and then you think, well, actually, the vast, vast majority of all inhabitants of all countries are they're humans just like we are and don't want 
these horrible things to happen at all. I actually reached out to Tanya, who's, I'm not going to use full names just because regimes being what they are, I don't want to get anyone in any trouble. Just to express how sad I was at what was happening in Ukraine and how awful it was, which isn't at all to diminish from my utter abhorrence and hatred for the people who are inciting that. But that's not all Russians. And the people I met in, in that, at that conference were you know, great fun, super friendly, and just had an absolutely great time. So, you know, the sooner this can end, the better. So I'm glad to, to hear you're wrestling a bit with yourself on that as well. I was in a similar position. Oh, yeah. And interestingly enough, when I went to Russia to speak, I spent uh, half a day in a veterinary clinic. And, you know, it's the same issues that we're all dealing with in veterinary medicine. And so it was very nice to get to talk with them and discuss patient care and, you know, client worries and all the things. It's the same. We're the same. We're doing the same things. But the caveat is that at the time for the United States, when I went, Trump was our president. And as an American traveling there, so many people were like, oh my gosh, tell us this. And I don't know how many times you had to say, right? Like, listen, that doesn't express all of America. That is a small part of America. You know, I do not uh, agree with those ideals. And I think that probably a lot of our Russian colleagues are, are dealing with the same thing that I was dealing with when I went over there. Yeah, just not in a free democracy to be able to, to do anything about right. it. Okay, so moving on from that, and I would just draw a line and send love to our Ukrainian colleagues as well as our Russian colleagues. And God help me, I hope it brings it to a close. Something brings it to a close soon so we can get back to living in peace. But moving to, I'm like, so you have, and any pace change from that conversation is going to feel a little bit you know, glib or perhaps right. insignificant in the grand scheme of things. But you are Tasha McNearney and you are a really freaking awesome anesthesia technician and you know, like you'd run rings around my brain in anesthesia, which is actually isn't super hard to do. So it's not really big upping you terribly much there. But, you know, you're a legend in this field. And I actually wanted to talk about veterinary anesthesia nerds. And it sort of does draw on what we spoke about before of like finding your happy place and doing something. And you've got this community that's over 60,000 members. That is a huge community in veterinary medicine. I wondered, sir, how is that going? And, and how is, you know, have you got, you, 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 last time we spoke, you were starting to do conferences. Like, what is this as a force for good? And I'm kind of also keen, like, how did you get that thing going and off the ground as well? Uh, for anyone who wants to check it out, uh, you know, go to Facebook and search for veterinary anesthesia nerds and you won't miss it. It's got to be one of the biggest groups in veterinary medicine. It is one of the biggest groups in veterinary medicine, which... Again, I'm very proud of, but more I'm proud and excited that other people also want to like nerd out on anesthesia topics and what the latest studies are saying and that kind of thing. But maybe even more importantly than that is that there's a whole community of people who want to do really great anesthesia and pain management. We know that masking down cats or just putting them in the ISO box is not 
not only the best practice for our patients, but for our staff. And so we see that a lot of people are trying to move away from that and they want to do better. And I am very proud that Anesthesia Nerds has been a resource for people when they are like, hey, I have this dog coming in tomorrow with a cardiac you know, issue and here's its blood work. And can somebody just give me some tips and, and tricks and talk through some things? Anesthesia Nerds really grew out of me selfishly just wanting to talk about anesthesia cases. I think that because I was a brand new VTS, uh, brand new, and I just wanted to make sure that I was doing the best that I could. And so I had a couple friends on Facebook, mainly like anesthesiologists like Jamie Gaynor and Tamara Grubb, who are just phenomenal, phenomenal when it comes to anesthesia and pain management, and a couple other anesthesia technicians that I knew, Brenda Feller, Kim Speltz, these like big names, but I was Facebook friends with them. So I messaged them and I said, hey, what if we just started a group and it's just like 10 of us. And that way, if we have an interesting case or we want to talk about something, you know, or if I have a case and I, I'm just worried about it and I want your guys advice, we'll just start this little group. And they all said, yeah, sure. That sounds great. And then inevitably, you know, Kim would say, hey, I actually have some colleagues who would like to join this group. Can they join? And then we got more requests to join and more requests to join, more requests to join. And then when it got to be around like 1,500 people, which by, which right now doesn't sound like very many people considering we have 60 some thousand. But when it got to be 1,500 people, I was like, whoa, I can't keep track of all these people. Again, I was going on anesthesia nerds after my son would go to bed at night. And then staying on there for hours, answering questions, making sure, you know, you know, Facebook groups can get a little rah, catty and start some drama. And we are very much no drama group. As soon as somebody, you know, makes a, a rude comment or anything, it's deleted. It's done. We don't tolerate that in anesthesia nerds. You have to really be there. You know, no judgment. We're all trying to get better. We are all learning that kind of thing. And so it grew and grew and grew. And I reached out to two colleagues of mine who are also fantastic technicians in anesthesia, uh, Stephen Sital and Darcy Palmer. And I reached out to them and I said, hey, I need some help and I can't do this alone because we are constantly getting requests for new members, but we're not like any a lot of the other Facebook groups in that we're very select in who can be a member and that means that, again, no offense to pet parents, but this is not a group for pet parents to go in and, and ask about their vet's anesthesia protocol. This is not a group for people who work for a pet food company or for any company, really, because this is not meant to be advertisements for certain things. This really is case-based discussion. How can we get better and grow as a team? So it kept growing and growing. We have had a couple of veterinary anesthesia nerds conferences. We actually are going to have a veterinary anesthesia nerds track <laughs> at this year's fetch in San Diego. Wicked. And we are going to do a regional nerve block wet lab to help get people on the team more acquainted with things like epidurals and sacrococcygeal blocks. Our anesthesiologists who have partnered with us are going to help teach things like ultrasound guided blocks. So it's the opportunity to actually sit down and talk with people who are in the clinic and then they go out and they make patient care better for all the patients that they see. And knowing that I'm like a small part of that, again, is so rewarding and so fulfilling. And Anesthesia Nerds has a podcast now where we are case-based discussion podcast. 
where we do nothing but talk about anesthesia and pain management cases. We do a lot of work with IVPM. Darcy and Stephen, on their own right, are brilliant speakers and lecturers. So, you know, they are lecturing at conferences and spreading the word about good anesthesia and pain management. So it kind of grew from this little group of 10 people to 60 some thousand people around the globe. And I really say around the globe, I, as I was on the train to work two days ago, I was messaging with a veterinarian in Egypt who had some questions about a pre-med for a pregnant cat and that kind of thing. So to be able to talk to people and talk each other through cases and give them a little bit of information to make them feel better, less scared of anesthesia is what we want. Because I think a big reason that people stay in one box when it comes to anesthesia, when they stay in that we've always done it this way box, we know what works is because anesthesia can be scary, right? And we know that anesthesia in veterinary medicine does have a higher mortality, morbidity rate than human medicine. We know this. Anesthesia can be scary. And back in the day, and when I say back in the day, I'm thinking like when I first started in veterinary medicine, which was 1997, was my very first veterinary med job when I was 16. The clinician that I worked with at that rural Michigan practice, he said to me, anesthesia is just unpredictable and things die. And that's just how it is. And that's how for a long time we approached veterinary anesthesia. We don't want to do that anymore. (laughs) We have a lot of research. We have a lot of science that we can learn from. We have a lot of talented anesthesiologists and veterinary technician specialists we can learn from. And I think it is our duty as veterinary professionals to educate ourselves the best that we can and not continue to do status quo and to give our patients the best anesthetic experience that we can. Are we measuring the sort of improvements in time? Like are there ongoing sort of studies to track improvements in anesthesia? You know, there was some horrible study done way back when where the mortality rate, I think it was a study from France or Belgium or something. It was everyone seemed to quote that at clients and no wonder everyone was scared of anesthetics because it was just an awful mortality rate. You think there's just no way that it can was be right. Awful. But and then Sheila Robertson, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, you know, she had much, much different statistics. I just wondered how often measurements are taken to see, you know, how are we going? You know, in performance management, you measure things to see if we're we're getting better. It's quite difficult, obviously, to do that. But in some ways, not difficult to do that as well nowadays with electronic records. Yeah, I don't know how often they are done. But I do know of a study in 2000, wait, 2000 or maybe 99. Then the most recent one I know was 2009. And that showed a big improvement in that like 10-year period. Mm. So I'm hoping that we continue, again, to get more education, to get better. Where's the start point then? And I'm sort of, you know, you go around and you said you've gone in a lot of clinics. What are the common things, you know, 80-20 rule? For folks listening, what are the common things that you're seeing getting done that give you pause for concern? And you think, if I were to apply my anesthetic magic wand here, this is what I would change about this practice. Are there maybe are there some things that jump out more than others there that that probably are common in many general practices? Yeah, for me, I think everybody knows I'm a big uh, soapbox person for regional anesthesia. So anytime that we can cut down on 
big doses of opioids or big doses of inhalant, it's going to be better for our patients. So for me, it's regional anesthesia. And I think the thing that I, if I could change anything at the majority of practices, at least that I have been a part of, it's this idea that we don't have time for regional anesthesia. Okay, and say I more, say more about that. I've heard this at many practices in many different states. And I've heard this from technicians who come up to me after my lectures. Either they're trying to, they're considering taking a bulldog C-section to surgery and we don't have time for an epidural. We have to unblock this cat that is presented and we don't have time for a sacrococcygeal block. Oh, this tooth is just wiggling. I don't have time. I can just pull it out. I don't want to wait for the technician to perform a dental block on this patient, right? Or the patient's already sedated with their butorphanol dexmedetomidine, and it's just a quick laceration repair. I don't want to wait for local anesthetic to set in, right? No. That is one thing I wish that we could change that mindset of we don't have time. We do have time. We really do. <laughs> and when you train your staff appropriately on how to perform these blocks, you know, uh, we can do a femoral sciatic block using the nerve stimulator. I think that we did one, at my the practice I was just doing this past week, four minutes, four minutes. So to say that we don't have four minutes to provide better anesthesia and pain management, to me is no. And even when we're talking about a C-section emergency patient, if you have your staff member, again, you, you need to get your staff members trained. But if you have a trained staff member who can perform that epidural very quickly, usually three to five minutes, three to five minutes will make a huge difference when it comes to the amount of inhalant or propofol or et cetera you're going to need for that patient. And we know that those are the things that are going to be detrimental to those patients' blood pressure. So when we're talking about real balanced anesthesia and making that the best experience for the patient, we do have time or we need to make sure we make time. Do you think time is the issue? Is time like, you know, when kids throw a wobbly and they're like, I don't want this dinner. And it's like, okay, it's not the dinner, is it? What else? What's going on here? And there's always something mm -hmm. else that's going on. The first excuse is rarely the real excuse. Is that true here? Yeah. I think for some it is. I think that when you go to things like the emergency C-section, they people really do. They're like, no, I just need to cut this patient now. I need to get it on the table now, et cetera, et cetera. So, but again, if I'm talking about three to four minutes, we have that time. Yeah. When it's things like a sacrococcygeal block or for a blocked cat or a proper dentistry block to take a tooth out. I do think that a lot of this comes out of personal fear that they, they've never done this block before and they're unsure of it and they don't know how to do it. So they're fearful to attempt it. Yep. Or they might have a staff member who feels comfortable, but the attending clinician has never performed it. So they're uncomfortable letting their staff member do it because they don't know what all the ramifications are. So I do think that some of this not having enough time will come down to fear of the side effects, fear of never doing it before, fear that if something goes wrong, they're liable for it. Fear of not knowing as much as your technician in some veterinarians' minds as well, right? 
That's ego. That's ego. Right. Then that's ego. That's not best patient care. No. <laughs> that's ego. <laughs> Oh, Tasha, I can't wait to, I, I feel like I need to fly you across to the practice and, and have you in bed with the team and do some training. They'd love that. Oh my gosh, let's do it. You, well, A, you know I love the UK, but B, oh, my goal is to just visit every country and teach everyone how to do really good local anesthesia. Uh, I'm telling you, once your staff gets proficient in sacrococcygeal blocks and epidurals, yep. it just changes your life. And I know that's a big statement to say, <laughs> but I'm telling you, if you see urethral obstruction felines in your practice, a sacrococcygeal block will change your life and change their life too, because it makes them more comfortable. I love it. Okay. Now I'm keeping an eye on time here and there's obviously lots we could talk about, but if people want to learn about anesthesia, then they should really listen to your podcast. If they want to learn about you, they should listen to this podcast, this particular one episode of this podcast. So I'm going to shift gears into our sort of more rapid fire question round. And you don't have to give rapid answers. You can give whatever answer you like. But uh, you've done a lot. What are you most proud of in your career and why? Thus far, the journey so far. Thus far, most proud of, oh, it's so hard. It's going to be a toss-up between creating veterinary anesthesia nerds and helping create and push Animal Pain Awareness Month. Because, like I said, I can write book chapters, I can write articles, you know, nobody's going to read those in 30 years. But the fact that anesthesia nerds could live on and inspire somebody else to eventually take it over one day, or that Animal Pain Awareness Month will help clinics to be more cognizant of checking in with owners on every patient that comes through for signs that their animals in pain and then helping more animals. Like the fact that I potentially have helped create something that's going to have a ripple effect all over and help animals is, I mean, that's amazing. It is. It's a remarkable accomplishment. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given or you have ever given someone and you've got to be able to if you gave it you've got to be able to qualify why you think it's the best advice maybe I can answer that the second part when I'm you know in the twilight of my career but since I'm still in the middle I'll give you advice that somebody else has given me and that was our good friend Andy Rourke and he quoted somebody else but he I was very disappointed because I was dealing with this management person and I kept going to them about an issue and I kept having, I felt like I just kept having the same conversation and nothing was getting better. And he eventually said to me that when people show you who they are, believe them the first time. And that is hard, right? Cause I want to be like, well, no, they, they wouldn't, you know, this and this and they, and sometimes people, and I don't necessarily think that this is a bad thing, right? Sometimes people just don't have the capacity or the bandwidth or whatever you want to say mm -hmm. to do what you want them to or need them to do. And then again, now I have to start to look inward, right? And is this an issue that I could take responsibility for, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that that really opened my eyes to the fact that, again, 
people who say no to me doesn't mean that they're automatically, you know, lazy or, you know, unwilling or not as dedicated. Sometimes these people, they are just where they are and they don't maybe have the ability to take on anything extra that I might be asking them of, or they don't have the training to do it. They don't have the education, et cetera. And I have changed the way I I try not to be as judgmental, which is totally, totally hard to do, right? It's just hard. Again, work in progress, but I'm trying my best because I do believe that everyone in vet medicine, I do, really do believe everyone has good intentions. I don't think that anyone gets into this because they think that they're going to be millionaires on a yacht. I think that we all get into this because we really want to help animals that are suffering and we have good intentions. It's just unfortunate that we're thrown into like, you know, things like business and management. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a bit I love. So, so what's the worst piece of advice you've ever been given or gave? <laughs> oh, I think probably the worst piece of advice probably came from, Ooh, well, I got a couple. I think one was from the uh, veterinarian that I first worked with. I mean, again, God bless him. He was working with what he had. But I remember him saying like, oh, animals don't feel pain in the way that we do. And me at 17, I was at my first vet job. I was like, oh, okay, interesting. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as soon as I had my college level biology class and I was like, oh, wait a minute. Actually, we have the same neuromus. Wait, wait, that was wrong. <laughs> That was bad. Don't actually do that. But I think the other really bad piece of advice I got was, I don't know if it's necessarily like a, a quote or a piece of advice, but it's just the like, suck it up and get it done. Right? Just like suck it up and keep pushing through it and keep going and keep going in this like, hustle mentality that again, we earlier talked about that was probably the bad piece of advice that I got in college was just keep going, just take more classes, just suck it up, just do it. And the problem is it spilled into my first job and my second job and led to me just doing too much and not realizing that I could have hobbies or a life outside of veterinary medicine. Yep. So again, work in progress, balancing it now, but you don't have to always suck it up. You can actually take time for yourself if you need time. And even if that means taking a break from veterinary medicine for a minute and you want to go, I don't know, just go be a barista for a year in Greece or something like whatever. If that's what you need to do, do yeah, it. Do you it. don't have to always suck it up. You mentioned a therapist early on and you know, you feel free to tell me to, you know, go jump off a, a pier with this question. But when did you make the decision or when did it become apparent to you this was a good idea? Was that something you grappled with for a while or is that something that was just like, this needs to happen now? And how did you go about, you know, was it a straight shot to the, the right therapist, as it were? Any insight or advice there? Yeah, I am pretty open with people to let them know that I have a therapist. I do believe in therapy. Uh, it did take me a minute to get there. I certainly wasn't right off the bat uh as open to it. And that's probably just due to my upbringing, having boomer parents that believed that therapy is only for people who are air quotes, crazy or unstable, as my mom said. And so that was hard for me because I grew up 
thinking that you would only get a therapist if you had a, you know, if you were really had a mental problem or on the brink of something disastrous. Yep. And I thought for a while, like, oh, I can just like read a couple books or a blog post or it's fine. And then again, like I said, with that job that I had previously, I had a lot of times where I felt like I was put in these moral conundrums and was I making the best choices? And then also I felt like I was not being present with my child, with my husband, with anything else in my life. Mm -hmm. And I felt at times that I would go to bed and my wheels were just spinning and spinning and spinning. And I was thinking about all of the things. And I just said, this is bigger than me. And if I had a friend who said, oh my gosh, I've been getting these uh, headaches and I'm dizzy and this and this. And you would say to your friend, hey, you know, you should like seek a professional to help you. You wouldn't like say, oh, just read this magazine and oh, why don't you just take a walk? It'll be fine. (laughs) If there is a problem, you would say, let's seek some professional help. And then I got it and I did. And then once I did have it, oh my gosh, I went, there's so many times I've been talking with her and I'll say something, and then as soon as I say it, I go, oh, yep, okay, I got it. I see. I see where, yep, okay, touche. I'm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Do you know the hardest thing for me sitting in, and, I, you know, I, I see a therapist as well, and I sat after a session, and it was early on in doing it, maybe third or fourth session, I was like, okay, where's the toolkit? Where's the work? Where's the stuff you want me to do to work on myself? And she just sat there just... And she didn't shake her head or eye roll or anything like that, though I think she'd been within her rights to do so. And she just looked at me and she, she just sort of sighed and she went, and it wasn't pity that was in her eyes. It was, I'm not sure what it was, but it was like, you're doing it. This is the work. And it's yeah. peculiar, but I had moments like that as well going, ooh, right. <laughs> and it's quite remarkable how lightning not like electricity lightning, but how much lighter you feel through the process of simply flapping your gums at somebody who's professionally trained to listen. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, and again, I don't think my parents are going to listen to this episode, so I feel okay. But there was a, we were talking about something and I said this sentence. She said, it was something about childhood. And I said, oh no. I said, my parents were, they were, too busy working and they were not around and I really resented them for that. And I mean, I was like, Oh shit. Okay. I get it. Oh man. Yeah. Okay. All right. I got it. So I have now become the workaholic parent. Oliver is where I was and I don't want him to be sitting in a therapist's office 30 years from now saying these things. So I need to change these things and I see it and Oh my gosh, I am a product of my environment and how can I, change going forward that's it and if he's lucky he'll be sitting in a therapist's office talking about his own things in 30 years time the lucky bit being he's worked out going a therapist is just fine if you could give yourself and thank you for sharing that by the way tasha that's um you know i think it's important to be able to talk about this and normalize it is normal oh my gosh listen i like Talking about something that has changed in veterinary medicine, there are a couple of clinics that I know of, like really big clinics, that actually employ 
like uh, social workers and uh, counselors now for staff and for clients. They have them on staff on site. Boy, I think that if we can have more of that, uh, it would just be so wonderful for veterinary medicine. There are some veterinary schools and veterinary technician programs who are also hiring like wellness counselors and things like that for students and trying to make that a bigger part of curriculum. I think it's just so important. It's so, man, just the whole thing would be better if everybody had that level of somebody to talk to. Amen. Now, perhaps speaking to that a little bit, if you could give yourself one piece of advice back at your graduation, what would it be? Oh, man, it would be, which is, again, something I'm still working on. It would be that you don't have to do all of the things. You don't. You actually don't have to do all the things. You don't have to say yes to all of the things. You can just say yes to the things that light you up. And that's it. You don't have to do all of the things. Love it. Okay. Now, is your preferred communication place uh, Instagram? Am I right in? Yeah, I do a lot of stuff on Instagram. And yeah, I would say most of the time when people contact me, it's through Facebook Messenger, which can be hit or miss because I don't always check it as much. But again, like, you know, I had a doctor from Kenya message me on Facebook Messenger and was like, I have an animal on the table. I need to ask you some questions. And I was like, well, what if I hadn't answered this? What if I hadn't seen my Facebook? Oh, God. Okay, so on your Insta page, imagine you you can send a a photo or a reel or whatever you feel like. I'm going to keep it true to Insta's original purpose because I, you know, visual is all good. But if you can send a photo and a message to everybody in veterinary medicine and it can flick up on all of our, our Instagram pages at once, what would that message be from you? Oh, I mean, probably the same that I just said is that you you don't have to do everything. You don't have to say yes to everything. You don't have to say yes to every client. You don't have to say yes to every request. And knowing your boundaries is a fantastic thing. And like sticking to boundaries is huge. And I think I said it before earlier in the episode that when you have that light bulb moment that, oh, I actually am in charge of this and I don't have to do these things that I don't want to do or don't light me up, then oh man, it's a game changer and the world just becomes better. So I don't know. I, I don't know what the picture would be. Probably some like inspiring sunset crap or whatever inspirational <laughs> quote. <laughs> but just to be like, you don't have to do it. Just like stop, which is so hard. It's just so hard. I get it, man. I've been there. I've been trying. I'm an overachievers anonymous, 100%. <laughs> All right, last question then. And that is simply to ask is is there anything we've not covered that you would like to leave as a message for the listeners today no i think that we've covered a lot or, or not only messages. should you yeah just do really good work man like just do work that lights you up and that you're proud of and if somebody asks you to do something that doesn't light you up or you're not interested in or that kind of thing Tell them and have that conversation. We should be able to like have conversations with people without it being looked at as like a negative or a fight or something. Right. I think everything because of like, you know, Facebook and stuff like if you disagree with somebody, it's automatically this negative fight. And listen, if you want to stay and do surgery till 10 p.m., 
that's a good choice for you, but that might not be the right choice for me. And we need to be able to like have those conversations and have boundaries and balance, which is really freaking hard, but really necessary in, in order to stay in this for a long time. Amazing. So for anyone who wants to follow Tasha, then T McNearney, that's T M little C N E R N E Y. Did I get it right? Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's on Instagram and is really the veterinary anesthesia nerds group the place you'd like to send people to on the book of face yes yeah uh although i say if you have managed to get this far and not be on facebook please do not join facebook for anesthesia nerds if you've managed to get this far without it just stay where you are you beautiful people where else would you like them to go then is there a website (laughs) yeah if you just google veterinary anesthesia nerds we do have a website there where we put some updates Again, if you're looking for case-based discussion and that kind of thing, that will happen on the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds Facebook group. Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds is also on Instagram every once in a while. Again, we don't update Instagram as much. And I'll just tell you guys, that's because I'm in charge of it. And honestly, I have a lot of jobs. And sometimes I would rather, like, you know, binge a television show than update my Veterinary Anesthesia Instagram But we're always open to questions and comments. You can contact us on the website via an email or, again, on Facebook, et cetera, if you have specific questions or if you want to just talk about anesthesia, talk about your career, or you want me to come teach you how to do sacred coccygeal blocks, which I will do. We're doing that, Tasha. That is happening. That's a promise. And also, since it's an audio audience if you just want to tune in and listen then check out the veterinary anesthesia nerds on i assume all podcast platforms uh, are normally available so do check it out yes the veterinary anesthesia nerds podcast there you go let's do it tasha thank you so much it's been far too long since we last spoke so this is really nice just to reconnect and get to sort of scratch around a little bit and say hi to you and learn from you so really enjoy time spent today thank you for everything you're doing not just for anesthesia but also you know the great contribution you're making and the inspiration you've got again to veterinary professionals all around the world rocking it keep on doing so pleasure to share the profession with you Thanks. I mean, I will say the same thing to you. I'm very happy that there are veterinarians out there who are interested in making management better, who are interested in leadership concepts that are not the same as the things we were doing 20 years ago. I am really happy that other veterinarians want to do better for their staff, be better leaders, be better managers. And I think that you're one of the leaders in that field. So I also appreciate what you're doing. Huge. Too kind. Take care. Till next time. Thanks. So just me again before you jump off on your day. Thank you so much to Tasha. Wasn't that just a brilliant episode? Definitely one of my favorites. I always know that because it's just as much fun to listen back to as it was to record. So thank you very much to her. Please give her a follow on the socials and check out Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds. Also, don't forget to check out the Vetex community uh, where you can find us at vetexinternational.com. And if you have not yet left us a review after all this amazing free content over the last five years, I'd be super grateful if you did that. Till next time, from us all at Blunder Section Podcast and Vetex International, be safe, be well, and be happy.